Hola, so. I like looping. So when we're going through the four measurables, also going through the cycle of shamatha, not just to go regimented, very linear, but kind of looping a little bit so everything gets woven together. So in the spirit of, and that makes me a little bit loopy, I think. Eh? Um, but in the, spirit, in the spirit of looping, today we're venturing more deeply into the practice of the meditative cultivation of compassion, but I'd like to take a step back, loop back to the loving-kindness. So remembering again, it's good to remember just the core themes, and that is, what is loving-kindness? It's an aspiration that we may be well and happy, that we can find happiness and the causes of happiness. And then we think, well, what's happiness? Well, there's hedonic happiness, hedonic well-being. And if we look, of course, they're, they're very lightweight things. Okay, ice cream, but we could live a very happy life with no ice cream. So there are a lot of things that are definitely secondary. But within hedonic well-being, and that is the kind of happiness or well-being that we get because things go well for us, there are some things that are not trivial. A lot of things are, but some are not. Having enough to eat isn't trivial, right? Having shelter. In a place like the, in this climate, you don't really need that much, but a little bit is still good from the rain, yeah? But shelter, clothing, those basic things, and then medical care when you need it. None of those are trivial. Nowhere are those trivial, right? Now, adding on to that, well, then out goes the spectrum. So when we cultivate loving kindness and we wish ourselves and others to be well and happy, to include these, because this is important. These are really important. And they're mundane. Yeah, they're mundane, but it's hard to meditate if you're really hungry. Hard to meditate if you have a migraine headache, and so forth and so on. So I just picked out those four because the Buddha picked them out. When he's speaking of different types of happiness, he spoke of exactly those four. Food, clothing, shelter, medical care, and he also added another one that we in the modern world have entirely forgotten about. I think Mexico's pretty good, comparatively. Greece is in terrible shape, and the United States is really awful. Debt. My understanding is that Mexico is not too bad for debt. Isn't it true? That's what I was told. In any case, we don't need to go there. <laughs> I don't want to go into geoeconomics. But the Buddha said also there's the pleasure of, pleasure of having enough to eat, shelter, clothing, medical care, and not being in debt in terms of mundane pleasures. And I know for myself it's a big one. I'm not in any debt. I don't own a house, so that's a big thing. But I'm not in any debt, and I must say that really makes things a lot more loose. You know, like, oh, good. You know, and I try to not even be in debt in email. When I go to bed at night, I like to see all of the inboxes empty. I have no debts to pay. So I'm, you know, trying to be like a little bit like Socrates before he die. Okay, I owe one rooster to one that I pay off my rooster. Okay, now I can die. <sighs> so I like to pay off all my email before I go to sleep. Okay, if I die today, at least nobody's waiting. <laughs> So there's the mundane, yeah? There's the mundane. And those, and the in, lack of indebtedness. I mean, we're really crippling ourselves, you know, in terms of geoeconomics by the massive debt we've taken on. Not fun. And then the Buddha goes from there into genuine happiness. Now, the Greeks call it eudaimonia, but genuine happiness. And he speaks, first of all, of the genuine happiness of blamelessness. I don't really like the translation all that much. I haven't seen the Pali. But what it clearly is, it's the quality of now genuine happiness that's coming from what we bring to the world rather than what we get from it. It really is a very simple equation. Okay? So that if, if you get something from the world, the world can take it right back again. Right? But if it's something you brought to the world, nobody can take it away because you didn't get it. It's something you brought. And so nobody can take away your ethical way of life. If you've just led a very ethical way of life, you've avoided harm, if you look back on the, on the, at the end of the day, 
on the day that just went by. And you see, he had the opportunity to maybe do something unwholesome here or harmful there or selfish or greedy or what have you. And you exercised restraint. And here you had the opportunity to be of service, to show some kindness, to, you know, do some virtue. At the end of the day, who can take that away? You didn't get it, so you can't lose it. And so that's genuine. It's from what you brought to the day. And so when we think, and I'm sure you know many people like this, at least you know some, I do, people who don't meditate for one second, just not drawn to it, they don't know about it, whatever, but they live benevolent lives, very ethical lives, really, of nonviolence, of non-harming. They're kind, they're gracious, they're helpful, really trying to lead a life of service. There can be a lot of satisfaction in that, with no meditation at all. So that quality of well-being coming simply from leading, simply from leading an ethical way of life, avoiding harm and being of service when we can, that counts. That's a big one right there, right? So there's that level. So when we're cultivating loving kindness and we move beyond the wish that others may experience mundane, we can go here. And may you experience the joy, the satisfaction, the sense of ease, right? Of saying that, that, was, a, that was a life well led. I, I avoided harm. I tried to do some good in the world, offer my best. Hey, I've got no regrets. So there's that level, right? And now as we probe more deeply into genuine happiness, then there's not only the kind of well-being that arises from how we conduct our way, our, ourselves, how we behave, engage with the environment, engage with other sentient beings, but there's also what we're doing when we're just sitting in solitude, not really behaving at all, just not doing anything. For the last an hour, I was almost doing nothing. I was just not behaving. Meditating, just sitting there, you know? And so, but what are you doing then? Well, then you're cultivating your mind. So now comes a whole another, another dimension. And it really is. It's qualitatively just like, you know, one dimension, two dimension, three dimension in geometry. This is another dimension. A dimension of well-being that arises right from the very nature of your mind as you're cultivating the heart, the mind, through the four immeasurables, through samadhi, through this whole domain of samadhi training, the second training. And then another quality of well-being arises in total solitude, with or without behavior, with or without, with or without engaging with other sentient beings, with or without doing manifestly something good in the world. Just, you start opening up the artesian well of that dimension of happiness that comes from samadhi. And the Buddha said, the bliss of samadhi is not to be feared. Not to be feared, right? It's good. It's not ultimate, but boy, it's not bad, right? And so including the, the kind of bliss or happiness or well-being that arises from cultivating loving kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, and so forth. So that's a dimension. And then we go for the, the nucleus, the pinnacle of genuine happiness. And of course, this is the happiness. And this is perennial truth. This is worldwide truth. This is not unique to Buddhism. We see this in wisdom traditions all over the place, east, west, ancient, and modern. The greatest joy you can find. Augustine said it. The highest joy is the truth-given joy. St. Augustine, major Christian theologian. It's a perennial truth. The deepest joy, the deepest sense of fulfillment, satisfaction, well-being, bliss, and so forth, from knowing reality as it is. Well, that's straight Buddhism. That's straight Buddhism. And where does that come from? From insight, from vipassana, from wisdom. And that is the vipassana, the wisdom, that is the, these are the methods, these are the qualities that liberate and bring us the highest sense of bliss, bliss of dharmakaya, bliss of nirvana itself. So, 
as we're cultivating love and kindness to attend to the mundane, especially the very important ones. And we can also include, you know, less important ones. If we see a, if, if, you know, if you have a child or you know some, some, some youngsters who's preparing for an exam, really wants to do well on the exam, that's not trivial. It's not life and death, but it's not trivial. So when you see, you know, somebody, oh, really preparing for the exam, then may you do well, may you be relaxed, may you do your best on the exam. You know, that's loving kindness too. So we don't want to be too esoteric here, you know. There's nothing wrong with you. That's, that's good, that's good. So we have that whole spectrum there. So that was looping back to loving kindness. And I want to loop forward to compassion. Compassion, what is it? Well, you know, it's not an emotion, it's not a feeling, it's not feeling sorry for people. It who is an aspiration, may we be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. And then we know there's blatant suffering, just the manifest pain in the body, misery or suffering in the mind. Then we can consider where does that come from? And this is the pain that happens because we encounter misfortune. We get ill, we get injured. Somebody treats us badly, we get disappointed, we get depressed, what have you. Where does, where does it come what, from? Now, speak from the Buddhist perspective. I, th I think it's true, but nevertheless, this is clearly bracketed, this is a Buddhist perspective. What are the underlying causes for misery arising, adversity arising? Because we're talking here about physical pain, mental suffering, that is, arises where? It, when it's blatant, it's arising because something went wrong. We didn't get something we did want, and we, or we got something we didn't want. There it is. So where does adversity come from? Well, from the Buddha's insight on the night of his enlightenment, and this insight replicated countless times since then, suffering arises from non-virtue. You know? Sometimes we can trace it in this lifetime, we can see that we treated somebody else badly and they turn around and treat us badly. It happens. But it does definitely happens that we'll experience suffering where we can't see anything we did wrong in this lifetime at all. People get cancer. Why? Because they treated their children badly? No. The causes may be many, many lifetimes ago. So on occasion we can see, oh yeah, I, I put something poison out, I'm getting poison back. Right? That happens. But from the Buddhist perspective, if we really have confidence in the Buddha's enlightenment, in his direct insights into karma, we can say, well, blatant suffering is coming because of non-virtuous behavior. From, from, you know, just that, unwholesome conduct in the past. So we'll see, it's just the balancing. Living in accordance with virtue gives rise to the first level of happiness. Doing the opposite gives rise to the first level of suffering. Right? So interesting. And then we go to the second level, and that will be our focus for today in the meditative cultivation of compassion. Really attending to, again, the real focus is sentient beings, but sentient beings experiencing now a subtler dimension of dukkha, of dukkha. I, I remember, just floats to my mind, when I first started really, really studying Dharma pretty intensely in Dharmazala in 1971, and Geshe Ngan was teaching us Lamrim, and of course we got knee-deep into suffering really quickly, the six realms, the three types of suffering, the six types of suffering, Wow, do Buddhists know a lot about suffering, you know? <laughs> and as I was studying this, I'm, I'm coming from, you know, loving parents, a happy, ch happy childhood, very rich, tr a transatlantic siblings. We get along really well. I never had any really serious illness. I wasn't starving. Even in India, I was poor, but, you know, I, all I had to do really was, Dad, I'm starving, and he would send me some, you know, send me something, I'm sure. Um, I get well card. <laughs> I don't know, he'd send me something. Um, but the point here is 
that I was clearly a very fortunate person. You know, I'm living in India, and I'm white. You know, that's, that's, you know, I'm from America, from Europe. That means you're fortunate. It's true. I mean, I had enough for an airfare. That puts me in a whole other economic bracket from a lot of people in India. They're not buying inter intercontinental airfares to anywhere. So just for starters, I'm sitting there in Dharamsala in a refugee community, and I know that, yeah, there's a lot of suffering in the world, but I felt, you know, that's really other people. Suffering is really other people. I mean, compassion, yeah, compassion. There are many people suffering pretty intensely in India. It's not a rich country. I was living with Tibetan refugees. They'd gone through a great tragedy, and so on, on and on. So I said, yeah, suffering is for other people. Relatively speaking, I'm really fortunate. Yeah, I got very, very sick, but some people died. True enough. But now go one notch deeper, and that's where we're going today in the meditation. Here, here we are. I mean, do we need to really remind ourselves how fortunate we are to be in this little pure land while everybody else is working for us, <laughs> you know, <laughs> to make us have the, the greatest opportunity we can here? That's what, that's what they're all doing around here, is they're doing it so we can meditate. That's pretty incredible. So in a way, we are just so fortunate to be sitting in this room. We could be out there pulling weeds, watering, cl cleaning the rooms, and so forth. So, on that level, clearly true. When we think of blatant suffering, well, most sentient beings are suffering one heck of a lot more than we are. And that's just the way it is. You know, whether you live in Mexico, you live in Greece, America, okay, it's, it's the same. Most sentient beings are suffering more than we are. Right? But when we go to the deeper level, to the suffering of change, literally it's called the suffering of change, now we're, now we're looking at a again, it's another dimension of reality, qualitatively different, and this takes some wisdom to recognize that it's there at all. It's not obvious. Cockroaches won't notice it. Dogs and cats won't see it, right? And insofar as we're living more like animals, just kind of grunging around after hedonic pleasure, we won't see it either. I think suffering of change is invisible to a lot of human beings because they're not, they're not seeing it. They're not seeing through the surface. They're just saying, how are you doing? Swell. Great. Everything's just great. Family's healthy. I'm healthy. Job is going well. Live in a nice place. I'm about to go skiing, uh, skiing this, this weekend. Uh, how are you? But I'm doing great. You know, kind of like they think they're devas and they're going to be there forever. You know, and not seeing, you know, well, I can rejoice that you're feeling great. I've met quite a number of people like that in Santa Barbara. One always comes to mind. His life was just grand. He just loved everything a part of his life, his wife, his music, his house, lived in a beautiful part of Santa Barbara. And I was happy for him. He's a, he seemed like a good man. But there was nothing more going on. That was it. As far as I, I mean, he's a decent guy, but there was no Dharma, there was nothing, there was just, he had a really good life. And I just thought, uh, uh, there's your house and it's built on stilts. How many stilts will it take to fall away before your house just collapses? And all of your sense of my life is going really well is now history. And so that's that deeper level. The, yeah, right now I think we're all in pretty good health. I'm, I'm glad to see for the time being, you know. But that too will pass, right? And so this second level of suffering, it, can, it actually looks pretty nice. But it's the level of well-being, of happiness that is hedonic and it's being sustained because we continue to be fortunate. And it's being held together, and, and we're getting that, it's being held together by grasping, by attachment, by clinging, by wanting more. And so we're holding, and for the time being, that, that bubble, that little soap bubble 
of samsaric well-being is going well. Samsara is turning out pretty well. How's your samsara doing? You know? But when, if one looks at this with the eyes of wisdom, one does rejoice. I mean, I love to see healthy people being healthy and that they're not healthy, being relatively affluent rather than poor. It's a good thing. But it does change. People do get sick, they get, they get old, and they die. What really nails it is what, whatever we acquire, we lose. Wherever there's meeting, there's parting. Whatever is born, dies. Whatever is elevated, falls. Universal, perennial truths. So whatever happiness we have that came about because of a meeting, an acquisition, a birth, or an elevation to higher status, well, it's on loan. It's on loan. So to see that while it's on, on loan and not when death occurs, be shocked. Not when we fall to a lower level, be shocked. But I was one of the elevated people. Not be shocked when the inevitable happens. We should have seen it coming all along because it's just the way things are, right? And so there, that suffering of change looks to be very pleasant. It may be hedonically pleasant. So Buddhism doesn't say that all life is suffering. No, ice cream tastes really good. I know about that. I like ice cream. And then it passes, or whatever. But then we can ask, well, how can we be free of that? How can we be free of that level of suffering? That is blatant suffering. Well, lead, lead the most ethical way of life you can. That's sowing good seeds for the future, right? And be sensible, get out of debt, and so forth and so on. But how can we be less vulnerable to this mid-range? And lo and behold, that corresponds exactly to, to samadhi. To samadhi. And then when we go tomorrow to the deepest level of suffering, what does that correspond to? Wisdom. Wisdom eradicates that deepest level of suffering. So, to make this a little bit more of a Dharma talk, I won't usually go on this long, but I just, my mind just flooded with kind of like, whoa, this is rich. Really, I, I just some get overwhelmed. I've been doing this for 40 years. But just, it struck me as so rich. And just the practice of samadhi, the cultivation of shamatha with the four measurables, so rich that I wanted to come back to a, a statement by the Buddha to arouse some very fertile dissatisfaction. Somebody really raised today how to develop renunciation, develop renunciation. Well, we know there are many discursive ways of doing that, meditating on death, impermanence, reincarnation, the six realms, and so forth. All of that is designed to do that. And of course, it's also a lot of it's faith-based. If you don't believe in reincarnation, then the six realms just have become irrelevant to you. Y yippee, I'm a human being. Too bad for you animals. You know, but I'm just absolutely 100% human, and then I'll be nothing. Well, that, that's, that's okay. So... But here's another approach to renunciation. It's not to say one is better or worse, but they are complementary, and there are, more than one, there are more than one way, there is more than one way, to cultivate renunciation. Here's a statement from the Buddha. And he's referring to the five obscurations, are often called the five hindrances. From the Pali Canon, often the five hindrances. I like the little, little bit more, I think it's a little bit more literal, five obscurations, and I'll tell you why. In fact, let's just nail them. What are the five obscurations? These are good to memorize. The first one of the five obscurations, and this is going to pertain exactly to our compassion practice, but it's looping over to shamatha. The five obscurations are the craving for, the, for one case, the, the bounties of the desire realm. It's often called sensual craving. But it's not just craving for sex, food, music, and so forth. It's that kind of craving for any of the bounties of the desire realm. That includes fame, wealth, power, 
having a great car, possessions, and so forth, being praised, and so forth and so on. It's that craving for the bounties of the desire realm. Well, that's basically what in the media and advertising industry is called the good life. Right? It's having good stuff, enjoying really good stuff, getting whatever medication you need if you need it to have good sex, um, and good food and everything else. Just make it good all the way and I'll, ju and I'll just pay for it. I, I saw the statement, if, if, money, if, if, if you find that money doesn't buy happiness, you don't know where to shop. <laughs> well, okay, on a certain level. On a certain level. But of course, there's an enormous profit motive in getting other people to buy into your own addiction. You're addicted to hedonic pleasure. Get other people to be addicted. It'll be profitable for you, in which case you keep the cycle going and we all feed each other's addiction. It's like living in an opium den. That's called planet Earth. And so craving is the first one, but bear in mind, it's not just kind of grotty, sensual craving like food and sex. It's much broader than that. Then there's malice, ill will. Malice or ill will, really wishing others ill. That's pretty straightforward. Then there are, there are lack, yeah, um, ill will, malice, enmity. All of those three are used synonymously. Ill will, malice, enmity. It's really, really negative, negative intentions towards other people. And then there are old friends, uh, dullness, and, uh, dullness and laxity. From the Pali Canon, they call it sloth and torpor. But I always laugh at those. I think it's, it reminds me of, of, the, you know, of a sloth. <laughs> you know? And I start getting really silly really quickly. So I'll try to avoid that. Just we'll keep with laxity and dullness, because you know exactly what those mean. So that's a third one. Well, we, no explanation needed for that. And then we have excitation. That's good old excitation that we have in shamatha, in the shamatha practice, and then anxiety, anxiety hyphen guilt, hyphen feeling uneasy, anxious, guilty, that, that realm. It's a package, Anx excitation and that. We'll just call it anxiety. And then there's finally uncertainty, uncertainty not in the sense of simply being skeptical or not knowing something, but this waffling back and forth, not getting your act together, not being able to do anything wholeheartedly, but, well, maybe I can, maybe I can't, I'm not quite sure, maybe I can, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. maybe, maybe, blah, blah, blah. You can't do anything. You can't stop, you can't go, you're just wibble-wobbling in the middle. So that's not useful. So those are called the five obscurations. And here's what the Buddha said about the five obscurations. This is a direct quote. So long, I want to make sure my class is here, so long as those five obscurations are not abandoned, one considers himself as, or he's really saying, I invite you to consider yourself as, if you are still prone to those five obscurations. I'm inviting you, I'm paraphrasing a little bit here, to regard yourself as indebted, in debt, sick, in bonds. You've just been tied up, you're shackled, enslaved. That sounds pretty nasty. And lost in a desert track. Imagine you're out in the middle of the, Go of the Gobi and you're completely lost. I he says, I invite you to think of yourself in that way because that's, that's how I view you. Right. In other words, he's just, he's raised the bar. He's raised the bar on what mental health is. Because mental health in, in modern medicine is pretty much, if you're not right now suffering from one of the 300 diagnosed diseases, if you're normal, you're healthy. 
and what that means, without any, any sarcasm implied, if you're as healthy as your therapist, then go home. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and I hope you have a good therapist. Because <laughs> you know? a lot of people go into psychotherapy because they feel pretty crappy inside, and they're trying to get some help from themselves. That's what Paul Ekman tells me, and he, he, I think he knows what he's talking about. And so what the Buddha's just done here is he's just raised the bar. He said normal sucks. Normal really sucks, because this is normal to have a mind that's really still addicted to the bounties of the desire realm, normal to feel ill will on occasion, normal to have laxity and dullness, excitation and anxiety and uncertainty. It's completely normal. He like, oh, so sue me, I'm a human being already. He said, yeah, you're a human being. You're a human being who's sick, indebted, enslaved, in bonds, lost in a desert track. And you can consider all of those together. You are in the middle of the Gobi, and you are in bondage, and you are enslaved. You're also sick, and you're in debt. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Being lost in the middle of the Gobi and having heavy debt at the same time? And being sick, and being enslaved, and being in bondage, and you don't know where the heck you are. And then he says, welcome. That's what it's like to be, from the perspective of a person who is free of those obscurations, that's what it looks like retrospectively. He's not just trying to give us a bad day. But he's saying, from the perspective of a person who's free of those, you look back and you say, Good grief, how could I have tolerated it so long? Because now that I know that they're not necessary, now that I know what it's like not to be dominated by these obscurations, how could I have ever, how could I bear it? How could I, from my perspective, that is just awful. And this is the perspective of a person who has achieved samadhi regarding those who have not, or oneself prior to achieving samadhi, let alone wisdom, just samadhi. And looking back, oh, how pathetic, how pathetic. But as long as you're in the pathos yourself, you say, this is normal. Pass the beer, you know. And so that's kind of renunciation. And it doesn't, it's not faith-based. It's not, we don't have to believe in the authority of somebody else to start getting this, to seeing through our own experience. Are you really getting any satisfaction from craving and clinging for the bounties of the desire realm? Is there any joy and ill will in, in experiencing malice? Do you ever feel happy and when at the same time you're feeling malevolent? Is there any satisfaction, any hope of ever being satisfied when your mind is still prone to laxity and dullness? Is that a track to joy? And how about anxiety and excitation? That's just scrambled, restless. No satisfaction, no peace, no serenity, and uncertainty, forget about it. There's no happiness there. You wobble, wobble, wobble. And so this, this is another track to developing a profoundly authentic motivation for Dharma. It's not faith-based, and I do have faith, so I'm not at all putting down the discursive meditations that are classic in the Lambrim, the four thoughts that turn the mind, and so forth. I'm absolutely not putting that down, but I am saying, gosh, you know, there's another way. That, but it requires very careful attention to experience and seeing for ourselves and then having the notion, gosh, maybe this isn't the only possibility. Maybe, in fact, there are people who develop samadhi sufficiently that they're free of these obscurations and they are looking upon me as the person who's lost in the desert track. And yeah, I, can't, I was raised in Scotland and America and I come from a happy family and so forth and they're looking upon me with compassion. Why? Because my mind's still subject to those five obscurations. 
So on the end point, before we jump in, gone for a half an hour, uh, is this point. I really like this. I just learned this recently when I was reading a commentary to the Dhammapada, but I really liked it. And you'll, I hope you'll see why. They can be called hindrances. Well, not bad. It's not, a, it's not incorrect. If hindrances is, if Carissa is trying to get some water and I'm blocking her, I'm blocking her and say, hey, you're, you're hindering me. I'm trying to get some water here. Okay, it's a blockage. Kind of flat. I don't see much juiciness there. Okay, you want something, there's something hindering. But the word obscuration raises the question, what's being obscured? And that's why I like it. In this context, the five obscurations. Now the same, yeah, the same word dipa is used for cognitive obscurations and so forth, but now it's just the five obscurations. In this context of the five obscurations, there's something very specifically that they are obscuring, making invisible to us. It's not nirvana, it's not nirvana, it's not Buddha nature, because that would be the much deeper obscurations. These five obscurations which are dispelled, they are removed, like removing a veil, they are removed with samadhi. You don't need wisdom. Now, they're not irreversibly re removed, but they are removed. You are free of them. Like, it's like having, yeah, a disease, and then you get inoculation. Okay, now, now you don't have it. Now, maybe, so, so Alma's had some bronchitis. Well, you'll be free of that. And then you won't have it anymore. Now, you might get it one day in the future, but you'll know, wow, it's so much nicer not to have bronchitis than when I was really coughing and feeling pretty awful. So it's like getting over bronchitis. Well, you may get it again in the future, but for the time being, you don't have bronchitis. So why are they called obscurations? Well, I'll give the metaphor first, and this is again right from the, from the Pali Canon. I really like it. And that is, consider your mind as a pool of water. You've heard that one before. A pool of water, right? Then craving, and now we're going to see how each of these five obscurations obscures the clear vision of the nature of the, of the pool of water itself, right? Craving is like the water mixed with colors. So brown, purple, green, whatever, but now you can't see the water because it's all colored, right? It's tinted. It's not, it's, you're not seeing it clearly. You're just seeing the tinting, right? So that's how that obscures. You're not seeing the nature of that clear, transparent, limpid, luminous water because it's all colored with green or brown or whatever. So you're just seeing the color. Well, that obscures the water itself. You just see the color, right? And then malice or ill will is like boiling water. If you look at a pot of boiling water, you can't see down to the water. It's, it's so like that. You can't see into the water. So that obscures it because it's boiling. Nice metaphor for malice, isn't it? Boiling water. He was boiling over with rage, we say. Then we have laxity and dullness. This is a really nice one. This is like moss. Moss or algae covering, filming over the surface of the water. So you can't see into it. It's, it's all green, algae-ridden, moss-covered. It's a nice one. Then we have ex ex excitation and anxiety. And these are like the water that's turbulent because it's whipped by the wind. So if the whole point here is I'd like to see right down through the water and see the whole clarity of the very nature of the water itself, its clarity, its limpidity, and so forth, well, I can't see if it's colored. I can't see if it's boiling. I can't see if it's colored with moss. But also, if the surface is all rippling because it's being disturbed by the wind, I, I also can't see through it. I'm just seeing the waves on the surface. So that's a nice one. And we know what it's like to have the mind that's restless, whipped by the wind of excitation and anxiety. And then finally, uncertainty is like turbid, muddy water. Turbid, thick, muddy water. A lot of, lot of sedimentation in it. 
Okay? And that, of course, then if, as long as any one of those are there, you're not going to see the nature of the pool of just a pool of crystal clear water. They obscure it. So, shamatha, the practice of, the, the practice of samadhi, the practice of shamatha, is precisely designed this is exactly the medicine for overcoming those five obscurations. So that when you achieve shamatha, what has been unobscured? The luminous, clear, cognizant nature of your own awareness. And you'll see it now without the veils of your desire-ridden mind, of the desire-realm mind, which is almost like atmospheric distortion. You'll be able to see in the very nature of consciousness without the moss, the turbulence, the boiling qualities of the ordinary mind, you're seeing right through to the substrate, substrate consciousness. Or, always think substrate consciousness, subtle continuum of consciousness. It's limpid, it's clear, it's luminous, it's knowing. And when you've settled in that by way of shamatha, it's blissful, luminous, and silent. Blissful, luminous, and non-conceptual. That was being, the bliss that is already there, is being obscured by those five obscurations. The natural luminosity, the radiance, the glowing, effervescent quality of your own awareness obscured by those obscurations. The serenity, the stillness, the non-conceptuality obscured by excitation and so forth and so on. So that which is already yours, you don't get it from me, you don't get it from Buddhism, you don't get it from anybody else. That which is already yours is being obscured by something that's also yours, the five obscurations. And then shamatha comes in, well, then we're practicing on, again, something that's already yours, your breath, focusing your mind, and so forth. Final point, I find it so interesting. I, I'm in a, a way, in a little bit amazed that I just find such enthusiasm for this. I've taught it for so long, and I've known it for such a long time, but gosh, it's so marvelous. Just, it is just amazing that within the five obscurations, uh, that is within, so we have the five obscurations, and through the cultivation of shamatha, moving towards access to the first jhana, just doing something like watching your breath. I mean, that's about as mundane as it gets. <laughs> you know, doing something like that, and it doesn't take any faith at all. Do you, do you, do you believe you're going to breathe? I guess so, you know. <laughs> it doesn't take any, we don't need to buy into any doctrine. We don't need to do that first. We may, like myself, gradually develop a lot of confidence, confidence but that's from years of study and practice and questioning and so forth. I was very skeptical starting out. I'm still skeptical on some things, but on the core things, I have a lot of confidence. But now, in the cultivation of shamatha, then what emerges through this process, doing something as simple as just watching sensations of the breath, or the emergence of the five factors of jhana, the five jhana factors. I'm going to stick with the Sanskrit, jhana. Jhana factors. These five jhana factors, it turns out, emerging naturally out of the practice. Each of the five winds up being a direct antidote for each of the five obscurations. Now, isn't that sweet? Each of the five jhana factors that arises through the practice of shamatha, one by one, they act as direct antidotes for each of the five obscurations. In other words, you have the illness, you have the obscurations, but in your own system. You don't have to get it by believing something or getting some mind transmission from a lama or anything like that. Built in, you already have the antidote. So it's like you have the TB and you also have the anti-TB antibody that's ready to come and clobber the TB. You have everything there. The illness and the antidote is already there. Right? You just have to unveil it. So let's see how that matches up and then we'll get back to the meditation. But I think in terms of renunciation, it's not enough just to get really sick of suffering. It's really not enough. It just 
make it can make feel, make it feel really heavy. Right. To balance that with some inspiration, balance that with vision. What are the possibilities? Right. And so, what are these five jhana factors? Well, in terms of the first one is one of the most interesting. Among the five jhana factors, which one counteracts craving? Which one it gets us over the addiction? This ever seemingly never-ending hope. Oh, if I can just find the right romantic partner, the right possession, the place to live, the right job, the right something, something out there is going to make me happy. I'm sure of it. I just have to be clever enough to find it. You know, like we're like a fish waiting for a nice, some big worm to fall into the water. And then we find it has a hook in it, you know? And so getting over it. Well, what helps us get over it? Well, of course, you can do all kinds of discursive meditations for that, the six realms of existence and so forth. But within the jhana factors, it's single-pointed attention. Just focusing single-pointedly is the direct antidote for the addiction of attachment to the desire realm. Quite interesting. It's really quite true. It's just like a, it's like a hot needle that just goes right through it. They say a neutrino can pass through like a mile of lead and not bump into a single neutrino. Yeah, yeah, a neutrino, pretty sure. A neutrino because it has no charge, but it can go through like a mile of lead and not bump into a single molecule. It's like talk about a hot knife through butter. Well, it's like the samadhi, just the single point of attention, like a needle, just punctures right through the desire realm, and you just right through. Oh, desire realm's behind me. Quite interesting. Single pointed attention, direct antidote for the craving, the attachment, the addiction to the desire realm. And then, oh, a sweet one. What's the direct, mali- what's the direct antidote for malice, ill will, enmity? It's a feeling of well-being, sukha, of well-being. Just that, well-being, eudaimonic well-being. The, the quality of sukha, the quality of well-being, of physical, mental well-being that arises through the cultivation of shamatha, it's just so hard to, to sustain some really negative thoughts, malevolent intention, ill will, malice, and so forth, when you feel such a sense of well-being yourself, you can't, I can't deal with that. I don't want, yuck, go away. You just don't want to deal with that. Just, nope, no thank you. No thank you. Whatever you did, okay, you're forgiven. Have a nice day. You, know? you, know? you just don't want to mess up your, will, your, Ill, your well-being with ill will. It's like farting. It's like farting in a perfume shop. I mean, just, you know, do it someplace else. Sorry, it's a bit gross, but it's actually pretty close. Then there's, then, then what directly antidotes laxity and dullness? Well, you, you might actually, well, if you've memorized the, fi- the five, jhana fa- five jhana factors, you might recall. But when laxity and dullness, laxity or dullness arises in shamatha, what do you do? You pay closer attention. You arouse, you reinvigorate, you take a fresh interest, and you really attend closely. And boom, there we are. That's called applied thought, or it's called course investigation. Two translations for the same word. It's very, very similar to the basic frontline antidote for laxity and dullness. Sharpen up, pay attention, focus your attention, apply your attention. And that does it. It's like, you know, a hot sun coming, just burns away the mist in the morning. Then we have, this is a sweet one and a little bit un, uh, unexpected. What dispels the excitation and anxiety? Bliss. It's a different word from well-being. Well-being is a bit more diffuse in overall quality of well-being, but when you're really practicing shamatha and going into depth, you'll experience something more than general sense of well-being. You'll experience bliss. 
when bliss comes in, anxiety and, anxi anxiety and excitation just vanish. Where does excitation come from? If you remember Gopa, excitation, some, that's my translation. But the technical teaching in Tsongkhapa, again, is radiantly clear here. Excitation arises from desire, from craving. But if you already got bliss, what are you craving? It's like having, you know, a half kilo of ice cream in front of you and then wanting ice cream from elsewhere. Some really cruddy ice cream. And you got gelato. <laughs> One kilo of gelato in front of you and you're seeing some hmm, whatever. <laughs> no time for that because you're a very happy customer. You're getting bliss, so why would you desire anything else? So excitation, anxiety, bye-bye, gone. So that's one of the self-solving problems. And finally, uncertainty, the wobble-wobble-wobble mind. This is dispelled through what's called subtle investigation or sustained thought, and that's where we... just that. Those are the two aspects of the same term. It's, it's jipa in Tibetan. And it's, so it's sustained. You're not only focused, but you sustain the focus, and with precision, with a high degree of clarity, with subtlety, subtle investigation, it's called. And that just brings the insight. That brings the clarity, that brings the certainty. And then uncertainty, then it becomes history. Okay? So, that was a long, that would be very unusual. I'm, I'm going to very rarely go on for 45 minutes. But I just got so happy <laughs> with this material. I thought, oh, got to share. Because it will bring such texture, such richness to the cultivation of compassion and start making it real for ourselves. That compassion is not only those who are living in areas where there are suicide bombers, where there's illness, where there's poverty and so forth. But now on a deeper level, we can say, oh, as you, I'm sure probably all of you now know my, my story of the, the cow that was stuck in the sewer and the person who comes to rescue. You're the cow, right? You're the cow. I'm the cow that I'm the one deserving of compassion. Why? Because my mind still has these obscurations. And then feeling, but I don't have to. They're not intrinsic to my being, to my mind. I'm not intrinsically, irreversibly screwed up, that is, enslaved, in bondage, lost on a desert track, sick, and so forth. And so when we extend this to others, we call it compassion. When we extend it to ourselves, what do we call it? Renunciation. Self-directed, it's called renunciation. May I be free of suffering and the causes of suffering, and I've just identified one stratum, not the ultimate one, but a really important one. As long as I'm still subject to the, th that type of craving, ill will, and so forth, how will I ever be really happy? How re is any real satisfaction, any real fulfillment? Do I always have to be trying to do one more good deed after another? What if I'm sick? Then I can't do much good in the world. What if I'm getting really old? I'll be about to take care of me. Some people feel, oh, my life is now meaningless because I'm a cripple. I should be dead. Why? Because I can't do anything for anybody else. Too bad. Don't you, what about your mind? What about your mind? You know? So we won't always be in a position to be of service. But as long as we are here, got a mind. So to cultivate compassion for ourselves in this context is an expression of renunciation. We extend it outwards to others. And then it's a deeper compassion that will look at even those I'm in the human realm who have won the samsara lottery. You know, they're the Hollywood stars, they're the Angelina Jolie, the Richard Gere, the Brad Pitt, and so forth. Beautiful people. They also seem to... He's one of those actually quite virtuous person, too. Did I get them right? Yeah, they're all. They're all really quite virtuous, doing good things in the world. 
I've read about them, you know, but good things. That's good, you know. But they're gorgeous and they're rich and they're famous and so forth. And a lot of people are gorgeous, rich, and famous. They're not doing much good in the world. But still, in terms of what's happening to them, well, they won. They won the samsara lottery. But they too, they too, if their minds are still under the domination of the five obscurations, you may be the most glamorous movie star, the most wealthy person in the world, or what have you. And even doing good works in the world, that's good, good, good. But if your mind is still dominated by the five obscurations, you are an object of compassion. You are indebted, sick, in bonds, enslaved, and lost in a desert track. And that's for the really successful ones. Right? And we have the possibility to be free. And that's what we're here for. Good. Find a comfortable position. With delight, let your awareness descend into the body, into this quiet space. A non-conceptual space. And settle your body in its natural state. Balance between relaxation and vigilance, sustained with stillness. while mindfully attending to the sensations of the breath throughout the body. Relinquish all control of the breath. Let the body breathe without intervention or regulation.
for a little while, settle your mind in its natural state. Setting your mind at ease without hope or fear, resting in stillness in the present moment, naturally luminous and clear. Now let's make the transition to the meditative cultivation of compassion. And once again we will begin by focusing on ourselves. We who are indeed fortunate in so many ways in terms of mundane well-being or hedonic well-being, also fortunate in terms of having encountered the Dhamma. But as we attend more closely, to the degree to which our own minds now, despite all of our good fortune, all of our spiritual practice, the extent to which our minds are still prone, still subject to these five obscurations, are we really any different? any less obscured, any less impaired than those who have never heard about the Dharma, have no Dharma practice at all. Are we really any less vulnerable to manifest suffering of body and mind when things go bad? Where is the immune system, the inner resilience, 
that will protect us from the vicissitudes of samsara. So it's using your own intelligence, not relying upon authority or faith or simple belief, but using your own discerning intelligence, your own perceptiveness. Reflect. To what extent is your own proclivity to craving for the bounties of this desire realm? The degree to which you're still subject on occasion to feeling ill will, malice, enmity, to which your mind is still vulnerable to dullness and laxity, excitation and anxiety, uncertainty, to the extent that your mind is still prone to or veiled by these obscurations that veil, that obscure, that make invisible the innate purity, the luminosity, the bliss of your own awareness. Arouse for yourself the yearning, if you will. May I be free not only of suffering, not only of blatant suffering, may I be free of the underlying causes of suffering. May I be free of these five obturations. you wish, once again visualize the deepest dimension of your awareness, this innate mind of clear light, symbolically as an orb of light at your heart. With each in-breath, as you arouse this wish, may, be I, may I be free of suffering and the causes of suffering, with a special emphasis on these five obscurations. Imagine these obscurations like a dark cloud, symbolically, with each inhalation, Imagine drawing in this, these clouds of darkness, siphoning them into this radiant, limitless orb of light at your heart, and imagine the darkness being vanquished there, disappearing there, without trace. With each in-breath, may I be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. Letting your imagination play, breath by breath. Imagine being coming free 
of this addiction to the bounties of samsara, free of all traces of ill will. The mind so profoundly serene that excitation and anxiety vanish, so radiantly clear that laxity and dullness vanish, and so firm, so confident, that uncertainty becomes a thing of the past. Imagine becoming free with each in-breath. Imagine all these veils of obscurations lifted and like a luminous, limpid pool of water. Imagine the blissful, luminous, non-conceptual nature of your own substrate consciousness, totally unveiled, free at last, the five obscurations vanquished. Now direct your awareness outwards, like a field of compassion emanating out to each of the cardinal directions, the intermediate directions above and below, a field of compassion that reaches out first of all and embraces everyone near you, for those of us here in Phuket, here in this meditation hall. As we've all come here to purify our minds, to remove the obscurations, with each in-breath, arouse the yearning. May each one here, in front of me, behind, to the left and right, may we each be free. Free of all that obscures the innate bliss of our own minds.
With each in-breath, imagine drawing in the darkness, these veils of obscuration, and dissolving them without trace in your own heart. With each in and out breath, expand this field of compassion, embracing all those around you, human and non-human alike. With each in-breath, arousing the yearning, may we all be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. As you breathe in, imagine these veils of darkness, these causes of suffering, imagine them vanishing. Imagine the relief, the serenity, and the joy that arises when these obscurations have been banished. All that we need to do is discover what is already there bliss and luminosity of our own minds, waiting to be discovered. These five obscurations are the great levelers, those in positions of great power and influence, great wealth and fame, may be just as encumbered by these mental afflictions, by these obscurations of the mind, as those who are poor, living in very adverse circumstances. Equally, arouse with each in-breath the yearning, may we all be free. 
expand the field of compassion until no one is left out, embracing all sentient beings. And imagine each one becoming free. Why not? Why couldn't they be? Since all that waits to be discovered is what is already there, Then release all appearances, all objects of the mind, release all aspirations. And let your awareness come to rest, descend to its own place. Quietly know and illuminate its own nature. So, so, as I said, I will think I'll do that rarely, um, but I couldn't help myself. So here's the first question, really juicy one, very good one, I think relevant to many people. The question is, yesterday you, you said that open awareness, open presence, it's, it's called Rikpa uh, Choksha, Rikpa Choksha in Tibetan. Actually, the, the word is important. It doesn't, say open, it doesn't say open awareness, open presence. It's a good translation, but it's not literally correct. It doesn't say open, it doesn't say presence. You're referring to the Dzogchen practice now. Okay, it's also Mahamudra. And I think a lot of you probably pretty much, you know what I'm talking about, just open presence. It's a nice translation, I'll use it. But Rikpa Choksha, it's good to know what it also means. That is, what is the Tibetan? Rikpa is pristine awareness. It's Buddha nature, it's Dharma, it's Dharmakaya. Innate mind of clear light. So it's not just, I'm aware. You know, it's the deepest dimension. And choksha, choksha is translated quite literally and well as just let it be. Just 
it. Let it be. Don't do anything with it. And then we bring in all the adjectives. Don't modify it. Don't change it. Don't try to fix it. Don't add. Don't subtract. Just let it be. Let what be? Your ordinary mind? No, it didn't say sem choksha. It didn't say let your ordinary mind just be. I am a Dzogchen practitioner. When does it get better? I'm waiting. That's sem choksha. That's ordinary mind just sitting there. I call it marmot dharma. Marmot on a nice hot rock enjoying the sun. No reason to call it Dzogchen. It's just sitting there. It's not zazen either. Zazen is called just sitting. But of course, it's embedded in a very, very rich framework of theory, of practice, of zen. I mean, it's not just sitting there. It is, but it isn't. I mean, it's embedded. In fact, just last night I was translating one of the mind treasures of Dujum Lingba. And he just finished the section on texture at the breakthrough. And the, the part I'm just about to start, start translating uh, is the Tutgel, the direct crossing over. So we're now in very, very advanced Dzogchen practi- practice. And he says, in order for the Tutgel, the direct crossing over, to spontaneous actualization, that's my translation, direct crossing over to spontaneous actualization where all of the qualities of the Buddha mind become manifest. That's what the Tutgel is for, direct crossing over. Well, for that to bear the fruit, deliver the goods for which that practice is designed. He said very clearly, and he is a consummate master, he said, it must have the basis of direct realization of rikpa by means of the practice of tekchur, the breakthrough. So the breakthrough is like it's, breakthrough is like stage of generation to stage of completion. Breakthrough is the preliminary practice. It is the root, the foundation for the effective practice of the tutgel. Right crossing over. So I have nothing to add or subtract. I don't know anything. But I can translate a few words here and there. Right? So there he says that. He says, now for the texture, for the texture and the tutgel, these two phases of bona fide Dzogchen practice, the main event, right? He said there's only one way to practice this effectively. And that is the thorough integration. This was just last night, so it's very fresh in my memory. And, and the Tibetan was very clear, so this. I'm not uncertain about translation. He said this must be a thorough unification of the Dzogchen view, the Dzogchen meditation, and the Dzogchen way of life. That they're just totally, it's like just vegetables in a soup that have all blended together. And so that your view is imbued with meditation, way of life, meditation with the other two, and so forth. They're totally integrated. They're thoroughly integrated. And then that's Dzogchen practice. That's the practice of the great perfection. But it's not just sitting there like a dumb bunny or like a marmot. Okay? So open presence is letting be, letting what be, rikpa. What that implies is you've actually ascertained it. How can you let it be if you don't even know what it is? It doesn't make any sense. Right? So it's not letting your ordinary mind be, because you're just sitting there in your ordinary mind. And not like a tepid bathtub. Okay. It's not just resting in substrate consciousness. Let's call it having achieved shamatha. It's having ascertained rikpa and letting rikpa be. If you've not ascertained rikpa, then how can you let it be? And so that's where the pointing out instructions come in. That's where the ascertainment of rikpa comes in. Having ascertained it, having made the breakthrough, breaking through what? 
in the teachings of Garab Dorje, the first teacher of Dzogchen in our historical era, what you're breaking through is the substrate consciousness. How can you break through it if you haven't accessed it? It's silly, it doesn't mean anything. So that's why Garab Dorje said, first shamatha, ascertain the alayvijnana, the substrate consciousness, then you practice vipassana. <coughs> and having gained realization of emptiness of subject and object, the mind and all, appearing, all objects appearing to the mind, having broken through all of the reification by way of vipassana, now you're ready for the pointing out instructions, you gain the taste, you almost like a hound dog picking up the fragrance, but you do have the fragrance, and now once you have the fragrance, you just let it be, and you let it draw you in, but you don't do anything at all. It is jadalwa, it's free of activity, free of activity, you're just letting rikpa do its work, you said, okay, I've ascertained Rikpa. Rikpa has been ascertained. Okay, Rikpa, do your job. It's like, it's like you're a little, a little clump of cookie dough in the oven. Okay, Rikpa, do your job. I'm just going to sit here and rise. You're a cookie in the Zokian oven. You don't think, what does a cookie do have to do with the oven? What does the cookie do have to become well-baked? Calisthenics, you know. No, just sit there like a little lump of cookie dough. But you have to have the oven. If you don't have the oven, then you're just sitting there like a little wet piece of porridge. (laughs) And that's called resting in the ordinary mind, you know, not going anywhere. You're just going to get moldy. (laughs) So to have the Dzogchen view for this Rikpa Choksha, to do its work, it must be integrated with Dzogchen view and the Dzogchen way of life. It doesn't, it's not a standalone practice. If it's taught that way, you're getting, you're getting cheated. You're getting deceived. Anybody that t- t- says, I'm teaching Dzogchen, all I have to do is just sit there, just practice open presence, well, that wasn't Dzogchen. That's fraudulent. Sorry, but it is. And so, the Rikpa Choksha, the open presence, and again, I'm happy with that. It's, it's a nice word, but it's Rikpa Choksha in Tibetan. It's, it is the practice, if and only if, why you're just sitting there, just doing nothing, you're doing nothing with the view. It's not something you're compounding. It's not something you're artificially contriving. It is your way of viewing a reality, and you're just resting in that way of viewing reality, which is the Dzogchen view. But now, how can you possibly have the Dzogchen view if, as you're just sitting there, you're still implicitly reifying everything that appears. I'm sitting here. Yep, this is Alan Wallace. I'm really here. Oh, there's a lot of things appearing out there. Yep, they're really there. Without that commentary, if you're sitting there in a pool of reification, that's not the Dzogchen view. That has to be evacuated before you can have the Dzogchen view in the classic practice. This is why Garap Dorje taught Shamata, Vipassana, and then the Dzogchen. So you can't have the Dzogchen view unless you have the view of emptiness, the view of middle way, right? And so the question here was, you can't, the question was, you said that open awareness can't take one, can't take us to reach shamatha. Can you explain again why? I think I can. It was never designed. It was never designed for that. Practices are designed. You, you meditate on impermanence. Why? To gain, to gain realization of impermanence that overcomes craving and attachment and so forth. That's why you meditate on impermanence. And so why, would, why do you practice Vajrasattva? to profoundly purify the mind of obscurations. That's why you do it. Not explicitly to develop loving-kindness, that's not really what it was for. So we have this tremendously rich pantry, 
like if we're cooks, a pantry of so many different practices. What does Chen Rizi practice for? To develop profound compassion within the context of divine pride and so forth. That's what that's for. And so these multiple practices have very specific purposes. What's the purpose of open presence? Not to achieve shamatha. Never designed to do that. So why should we expect it would? What's the point? What's the purpose of open presence? Embedded within the Dzogchen view, meditation, and way of life, it's to realize Rikpa and to become a Vidyadhara. A Vidyadhara, one who has direct knowledge, unmediated, non-conceptual knowledge of Rikpa. That's what open presence is for. Not to, so it's like postgraduate work in theoretical physics. It's not to learn how to do multiplication tables. And so it doesn't lead to it. It's never designed to do that. Now, more practically, well, well, well but still, why? With well, a very good reason. Open presence is open presence. It's not selective. If you're selective, if you're kind of veering more towards in or out or to form or to shape or color or to thoughts or what have you, if you're showing some preference, some directionality to your awareness when you're practicing open presence, you're not practicing open presence, right? Open presence is non-selective. That's what it means to do nothing. Jadawa, inactive, disengage. You're just letting Rikpa do its work. You're just letting Rikpa be, right? That, that means you're not doing anything, which means you're not selecting. You've completely deactivated even your conventional sense of self, let alone reified delusional sense, which is sh activated del delusion. But even conventionally, even conventionally, there's Vicky. Does Vicky exist? Yeah, Vicky's a human being. She's a, she's a human being. Yeah, she exists. I'm not going to refute her. There she is. Conventionally, Vicky exists. The conventionally existent Vicky is being completely deactivated. Let alone the Vicky, I am inherently existent. I really exist here. That's just delusion. But let alone delusion. Even the ordinary appearance, the ordinary and authentic sense, I am a human being. I am Mexican. I'm American. That's being deactivated. Everything's being deactivated. You just turned off samsara. And you just let rikpa be. So being non-selective, it's not shamatha. Shamatha, what's, what's the purpose of shamatha? Relaxation, stability, and vividness to dissolve the ordinary mind into the substrate consciousness. But this means you draw your awareness inwards. You must take your awareness away from the desire realm. Why? Because the, pra the, the track of shamatha is to take you from the desire realm to the form realm. It's like a train. It's the shamatha train. You start out in desire realm, you end up in the form realm. If it doesn't, that's not shamatha. This is classic. This is universal Buddhism. There's no debate about this. But when you're open presence, why would that ever take you away from the desire realm? Because the open presence is to recognize the one taste of all of samsara, from the hell realms up to the formless realms, from avici to you know the highest realms of the formless realm. So why would it drift you towards the form realm and away from the desire realm when the point of Dzogchen is to see the one taste of the whole shebang of samsara and nirvana? It wouldn't. There's just no reason it would. So it's not going to lead to shamatha. Your mind will not withdraw. Your coarse mind, the coarse mind will not dissolve into subtle mind. So there's no reason to believe it would work. Well, you might develop, if, if you just say, oh, I just don't want to do all that Sutrayana business, I want to be Dzogchen practitioner, just practice open presence. You can. It's a free country, free globe. And your mind may become a little bit quieter. Why not? But to achieve shamatha, why would you? There's not a, not, there's not a reason in the world 
to believe that you would actually achieve shamatha because there's nothing in that practice that would draw your awareness away from all the five senses into itself, calm all the discursive activity when you're giving no effort whatsoever in open presence to subdue or to calm down any thought. And there's just no reason that your mind would dissolve in the substrate consciousness. But that's what happens when you achieve shamatha. So that's why. So to link that, I think this is going to be the, the question for the day, and I'm going to loop it into the earlier part, because it came up today in a conversation of something that is, if we just keep our eyes open and say, okay, what's happening in the Buddhist world these days? In the Zen tradition, people are generally practicing, lo and behold, Zen. You know, they're doing Zazen or they're working with koans. They're, they're Soto or they're Rinzai, or they're both, right? Soto and Rinzai are both Vipassana practices. They're designed to liberate the mind and to, and to realize Buddha nature. That's what Zen's for. Even though Zen itself means jhana, Zen practice, Soto and Rinzai, the work of koan, the, the, the just sitting practice, embedded in the view, the meditation and way of life of Zen, that's real Zen, for which I have only deep admiration. Well, Soto and Rinzai, the, the Zazen and the working with koans, they're Vipassana practices. They're designed to realize emptiness and realize Buddha nature. That's what they're there for. Right. And then in the Theravada tradition, and that's what's being practiced very, very widely, in the Theravada tradition, the modern Theravada tradition, in the 21st century Theravada tradition, almost everybody's practicing Vipassana. They might do a little mission of Samatha here and there, a few people are doing more, vast majority doing Vipassana, Vipassana, Vipassana. What's Vipassana designed for? Well, Vipassana is designed to completely irreversibly purify your mind of all mental afflictions. It's not designed to have your mind dissolve into the Bhavanga. Not, that's, what, that's what Samatha is for. And the Buddha gave this marvelous uh, parable. I'll remind you of it. Some of you will remember it, but it's a good one to remember, straight from the Pali Canon, the Buddha's own lips. And that is the, the story is this of a king who had quite a large kingdom, multiple principalities. And he had one out on the borderlands, and he sent one of his sons, one of his princes, out, an adult son, to go out and govern this principality. And there he was. Well, it turned out the son was kind of a goofball. And he was out there and just goofing off. He was partying, having a lot of women, drinking, carousing. He was being a real jerk. He was sent out there to be of service, to govern, to take care of the people, to be a good prince. He wasn't doing it. He was being a total jerk. And people around him, the population, his, the, this is the prince, he's acting like a total slob, worse than we are. They're getting pretty pissed off there. He was doing nothing to take care of the people. He wasn't doing his job at all. So the king heard about it. And he called in one of his ministers. And he said, I want you to go out and tell my son, you know, shape up, stop this. I will not tolerate it. And, but this is the minister, right? And the minister addressed the king and said, I'm sorry, your highness, but if I just go out there by myself, this is the prince I'm talking to. He's got bodyguard. He's got an army. And I go to tell him, stop drinking, stop carousing. He's going to cut off my head. So... Can you think again? And the king said, oh, yeah, you're right. You're right. Okay, I'm going to send you out with a bodyguard. I'll send you out with a really macho bodyguard. <laughs> and then you get, the you get the prince to shape up. Shape up or ship out, but, you know, a ton of bricks are going to land on your head if you don't shape up. So then having this good, solid bodyguard, you know, some real militia around him, then the, pr the, the minister went out with some confidence. He found, the, he found the prince, you know, goofing off, carousing and so forth, drunk, and so what happened? When they encountered first the bodyguard, a great big person like Barry Buck, 
You have, met, have you met Barry Buck yet? Oh, I hope you get to meet Barry Buck. He's an incredibly sweet man. But man, why do I not want to have him as my enemy? He's the head of security here. And he's a former paratrooper. He's, he's really tough. <laughs> he's a wonderful man. A gentle soul. Really gentle soul. But man, you'll look at him and say, man, that guy is tough. I never want to be on the wrong side of that guy. Well, a guy like, and listen to his name, Barry, Barry Buck. <laughs> it's not Barry Buck. My name's Barry Buck. It's my name's Barry Buck. <laughs> you know, it's like Clint Eastwood with a lot of hair. So Barry Buck is a really sweet guy. So imagine a really brawny, really tough bodyguard. Well, the bodyguard comes strolling in in front of the minister, and he sees the, the prince carousing drunk on the ground. And he comes, or maybe he's standing up. He comes, he throws him to the ground. He holds a, throat, a blade, blade to his through his throat and said, listen to the minister or else. Oh, the prince really paid attention. Because the bodyguard threw him to the ground first and said, you listen or you'll be sorry. And then the minister comes over and tells him what he has to do. The minister is Vipassana. The bodyguard is Shamata. The bodyguard, Shamata, throws to the ground your five obscurations, terrifies them, subdues them. They go dormant. They go, <laughs> you know. They're really cringing. And then you bring in the muscle. You look at my bicep. It really is impressive. You bring in the muscle of Vipassana. And now that those five obscurations are down and out, then you come in and you come in, finish the job. That's what Vipassana is for. Right? Then we have stage of generation and completion. When you come to Tibetan Buddhism, we have a lot of discursive practices, very good for developing renunciation, bodhicitta, and so forth. And then we have stage of generation, stage of completion. Right? What are they for? Well, this, of course, is the total unification of bodhicitta, of samadhi, of wisdom, to achieve enlightenment of a Buddha really quickly. And then we have the Tektrit and the Turkel, the two phases of Dzogchen, or the different phases of Mahamudra practice, and these again are the same thing, to achieve the enlightenment of a Buddha really, really quickly. All of that being premised upon, if you're practicing Vajrayana, that you have realization of Vipassana, that you have Shamatha, that your mind is spectacularly clear and serviceable. So what we have nowadays is a lot of people doing stage regeneration, stage of completion like Poa, Chu, Dumo, a lot of people doing sazen and koan practice. A lot of people practicing vipassana. Not that many people doing shamatha. Shamatha is explicitly designed, just as stage regeneration and completion have, are specifically designed to overcome very particular obscurations. Likewise for Zen, like for Dzogchen, and so forth. Shamatha is very specifically designed. It's just like a tool. It's like a hammer. It's like a saw. It's designed to do something. To do what? To remove, to remove the five obscurations. That's what samadhi is for. That's what shamatha is for. Access to the first jhana, achieve shamatha, the five obscurations are down. They are the cringing prince who's down and, you know, okay, okay, you know. So a really good question can be asked here. I don't want to throw dogma at anybody. I, I really I feel very uneasy about dogma because there's so, so much of it and everybody thinks they're absolutely right. Everybody seems to be absolutely right. I don't know whether I'm right or not. But here's an empirical question. And that is whether it's we ourselves or whether it's people around us. As we see ourselves practicing, whether it's Vipassana, state regeneration, completion, Dzogchen, Dumo, Poa, Chut, Zazen, Koan practice, or what have you. As the years go by, 
of whatever practice we or others have been doing, it's not an unreasonable question to ask, now that we've been practicing for however long, to what level has this impacted your addiction to the bounties of samsara? Still craving as much as before? In which case, what were you doing? Is ill will, anger, irritability, all that kind of negative, yeah, 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 is it still there? Still, has it really been dissipated? How about laxity and dullness? Has that really gone, gone way, way down? Is the mind just normally much sparkly, clear, radiant, luminous? How about agitation in this unmodern world that is kind of like a globe of ADHD? How's the level of excitation? anxiety, and so forth, stress. And how about uncertainty? These other practices, state regeneration, state of completion, vipassana, soto, rinzai, tekshut, turkel, they were not designed to do the work of shamatha. Shamatha was designed to do the work of shamatha. They all have their own work. Just like the minister wasn't to do the work of the bodyguard, the bodyguard did not give the prince advice. That wasn't his job. He was just to throw the, throw the stupid prince to the ground and get him to listen. They each have their own functions. So I am perplexed that these practices of shamatha, and there are many, I'm only teaching, emphasizing three, which are designed to make our minds sublimely serviceable for the practice of vipassana, of zen, stage of generation, stage of completion, tekshut and turkel, that which is exactly designed to make the mind truly serviceable, serviceable so that we can derive the full benefit from these more advanced practices, that one's being skipped. So often being skipped, marginalized, underestimated or ignored or misinterpreted. I do find this terribly bewildering because what we're bringing, if we, if we skip it or marginalize it, then we can still do all the practices. I mean, you don't have to go very far to find somebody who will give you a Dzogchen empowerment or stage of generation, completion, poetry, tumo, to find somebody who'll teach you Zen, somebody who'll teach you Vipassana. You don't have to look very far. Throw a stone, it'll strike somebody who'll give you that. Yeah. But like the old Tibetan aphorism, there are many profound practices, but not many profound practitioners. So I am perplexed that here is this delicious array of practices. And the four measurables, of course, are in fact themselves in that same domain. They're also samadhi practices. Right? Samadhi and loving-kindness, samadhi and compassion. And so it's all a bundle. I am surprised. They're so marvelous, they're so important, they're so indispensable. And they're designed to remove the five obscurations. And when they work, they do. And then you bring a mind that is clear, stable and calm, malleable and supple. And he used that to practice the Vipassana, stage regeneration, completion, and so forth. That, to my mind, on a very simple level, is like really showing, and I'm just speaking personally here, but most of what I said is not personal at all. It's just straight Dharma. I didn't make up any of that stuff. Now it's just kind of my own metaphor. It's personal. But to my mind, this is really a sign of respect and reverence for Dharma. These really sublime practices. Vipassana, state regeneration, completion, tactic, and so forth. It's really a sign of respect, a sign of reverence, that we don't bring a garbage mind, just a can of worms mind, with ill will and sensual craving and laxity and dullness and uncertainty, and bring this little garbage mind 
and say, please pour in the nectar of Dzogchen. I, I want highest yoga tantra. I want, what, what's the highest you got? Kalachakra, I want Kalachakra. What's the, most, what's the best one you got? Because I've got a short time here. Give me your most profound teachings. And pour this into this crappy, dirty little bowl full of moss-covered, dirty, colored, turbulent, <laughs> boiling water. Please pour the nectar of the Dharma into my little pot. That seems disrespectful to me. Like we're not even taking it seriously. So, but that's just an opinion. Maybe I'm wrong. But that's why we're here. That's why we're here. To make this mind wonderfully serviceable. And to get rid of those obscurations. Okay? Okie dokie. Let's have good dinner. Let's have some hedonic pleasure here.